Doctor Who episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we review episode two, The Ghost Monument. Written by Chris Chibnall and directed by Mark Tonderay. In this episode, the doctor and her new friends try to stay alive in a hostile alien environment while attempting to solve the mystery of desolation. IMDb is giving this a 7.1 and Rotten Tomatoes a 94%. And the critics say, the return of an old friend and a new nightmare-inducing monster make the ghost monument both a powerful step forward and a fun callback to the doctors of yesteryear. A dystopian rhapsody with phasers set to stunning, fast, funny, and frenetic. Before we even get to our thoughts about the episode, Jason, we have to talk about the title sequence as this is the first real shot we get of it. Yes, and we discussed it so much last episode. We were wrong. We thought perhaps they held it back because it shows a new TARDIS. And we thought maybe they would do a cold open and then show us the opening title sequence, but they went right into it. And actually, to be honest with you, we watched it before the episode came out. Well, and actually, there is no TARDIS in it at all. I found out it's the first time since 2010 that the title sequence doesn't feature the Doctor's face which honestly, I never really enjoyed. And then we had the master's eye really large. Mm -hmm. I wasn't that into that. But it's also the first time since 1984 that it doesn't feature the TARDIS itself. That was a little jarring for me, maybe because I was so focused on, will the TARDIS look differently? But as far as the overall design, I thought two things with this. One, it looked like it was the most modern opening sequence as far as graphics are concerned, but also one of the more retro-looking since the new age of the Doctor, meaning they hearken back to a lot of the old-school opening sequences. Yeah, I thought Den of Geek described this really well. They said, the new visuals go back to the more abstract days of the 60s and 70s, with an aesthetic that means you're never quite sure what you're looking at. And combined with the new rendition of the theme song, the opening becomes a real statement of intent to the series' roots. So yeah, visually we get something new. The screen starts out black with this ball of swirling violet light. It expands, showing the outline of the time vortex. And the light then pulses forward, revealing a liquid-like, multicolored vortex. As the camera pulls past, we see a swirling, colorful starry area. And then at the end, we get these golden letters spelling out the episode name and the writer of it, which the podcaster in me loves because mm -hmm. I get that information very clearly laid out. I thought at first it looked a little like brain scan imagery, the way this vortex was unfolding the blob-like shapes of it or maybe even Rorschach pictures. Yeah. I don't know. To me, it was just another good combination of mixing the old and the new together, and I was excited to see it. It's a play on fractals. Do you remember that little, um, back in the day, I used to put on when I was young, music and iTunes had that screen where it'll have fractals going on with the music. No, go further back, Jason, when you were a kid and you had that telescope looking toy mm -hmm. that you looked through and when you turned it, 
Exactly. They would change shape and color. I was always amazed by that. Overall, though, I think I liked it. Oh, I definitely liked it. I liked it a lot. What were your thoughts on the music? Because that was even more retro. Yeah, which there's so many things changing and so many things new. I talked about this in the guide episode leading up to the series. There's a couple of things that I consider to be the roots of Doctor Who that I hope they wouldn't forget about and they would acknowledge how important that was to returning fans. This is definitely one of those things, and I felt completely thrown off the whole first episode that we didn't get to see it. So something in me just breathed a sigh of relief (laughs) after we saw this sequence. I loved it. I think I like Matt Smith's opening music the most, but this one really reaches back to the retro. In our overview cast for Doctor Who, we talked about how they made the original song, which I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. They didn't have you know, what we have nowadays. Note by note, all those different sounds put together. It's amazing. So that twang, that little like, it's just a little uncomfortable on the ear when it gets too high. They kept that in with this one. I'm such a dork, but I go back to, I think my favorite opening was of the Eccleston era. Maybe I just can't get that out of my Hmm. head. Everything having to do with him, but they had more heavily some electric guitar going on in the midst of the title sequence. And I don't know, it just fit that doctor so well. It was, again, kind of a little throwback to cheesy 80s era stuff, but I enjoyed it. Maybe that was Capaldi playing the electric guitar. Ah, they should have brought it back for him. (laughs) But of course, this wasn't the only new big revelation we got this episode. We also got to see the TARDIS in all its glory. Well, to start off, and I know we shouldn't go storyline right now, but the way the doctor greeted the TARDIS and the emotion she had for that I found I don't know it was really touching it was humanistic and of course we'll get more into that once we get into the plot but the fact that she was feeling the same exuberance that we were feeling excitement and relief I mean truly this is the doctor's oldest and closest companion if we really want to think about it that way it's the one constant in her life And in contrast to some of the other doctors, when she sees this new version, and we knew the TARDIS had to be changed in some way, she likes the redecorating. Everything from the new lettering of the sign on the outside to a complete redo on the inside. This time we get alien-like hexagonal symbols. They have an orange glow with a blue color on the inside. What did you think about it? As the doctor and her crew walk in, They were genius the way they filmed this. They didn't show us a faraway shot with them walking in and make us absorb the whole scenery at once. They pulled us in as they came in. So first we saw their faces and we were just reading off of Jodie's face. Does she like it? Does it look good? As she gets deeper into it, then we get the wider shot. What did I feel about it? Well, there's a few things. One, I don't hate it. Um, This episode... So this is episode number two. I'm going to keep track of this. It might be annoying to people. was another very orangey episode. Mm. So I wasn't surprised that the insides of the TARDIS are very orange. Intensely so. But the contrast with the blue plays very well off my eyes. It felt a little smaller than we're used to. And I really liked Capaldi's second floor. I thought that added so much more depth because those who don't know, the TARDIS is bigger on the inside, yes. But we mainly only see that room. Mm -hmm. It's giant on the inside. There's hallways upon hallways upon hallways of anything you ever thought of is in that TARDIS. That we we never see those. Hear about through storyline what they tell us. There's a bedroom, there's this and that. 
we see underneath that room a little sometimes when the various doctors go to try to fix and repair things. But yeah, that's about it. I have to interject here. I kind of thought you were going to like it less and I was going to like it more. Because over the years, you seem to gravitate towards the more modern, clean-looking designs of the inside of the TARDIS, where the color is a little lighter, there's more white. There's more room. There's more space. (laughs) This goes back to a much older-looking design. The lighting's a little dimmer on the inside. You have these strange symbols that make the whole thing look a little more alien-like. And I, and I love that. I love that this is an alien spaceship and maybe it should look like an alien spaceship. I think Chibnall is going to lean on the alien a little more than our past writers have. In the episode one, she was saying, I'm an alien. Although the doctor has said that in the past, it's not that frequent. And I think they're really playing off of that. It's super easy to forget. Even with the secondary companions we meet this episode, Epso and Angstrom, they make a point to say they're humanoid and they look like Earthlings, Mm -hmm. but they're alien. In fact, they've never even heard of the planet Earth or human beings before. Never even heard of human beings. Beings. Human beings. Earth. We also got a little bit of an explanation that I had never heard this terminology. I really liked it. The doctor tells us it's dimensional engineering that makes the TARDIS bigger on the inside. And of course, Chidnall walked this very fine line. It was an effort in restraint that none of the characters actually said that line. I was... I was angry. I was waiting for it to come. They referenced it. They danced around it, but he wouldn't allow them to actually say, it's bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside, that's all. But she does tell us why, and she's also excited to see that it now dispenses custard cream cookies for her. I love the little underlining humor of Doctor Who. I love it. Cheese factor. Keep it coming. Also something we talked about last time that critics made mention, the cinematic air, the visuals that we're getting in this series, the fact that it's not a one-episode wonder. Independent said, Ghost Monument is one of the best-looking episodes as Planet Desolation's alien vistas are realized through stunning South African locations. And yes, everything I was seeing on screen was beautiful. Yeah, just like episode one when I spoke about Ryan, Graham, and Grace sitting on the mountain. In the far shot you get of that. They did the same thing here when they're walking. You get a nice far shot. Or I think in the boat, when they're on the boat. Yeah, both. So beautiful. Both. Chibnall definitely embraces the area a lot more than we've seen in the past. Yeah, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that the storyline itself felt like a return to form. It was an interesting concept. It was fast-paced. I thought the plot was a little easier to understand, but it still had depth to it. And it appears as though we're introducing our series through line in the form of the Stenza. Yes, and that was exciting to hear because everything we read before the series started was every episode is its own episode. There's not going to be a series arc, which I found scary. Disappointing. Yeah, because that's what I love about Doctor Who. The Stenza, there are new Daleks, it seems like. It's really too early and I should be shutting up, but it seems like they're the big bad in this one. There's going to be other big bads, but they may be the main one, at least for the first season. To bring them back in episode two, and yet again, just give us a little taste of how they're affecting other planets, other people. We said in episode one, there's things that the doctor must follow up with as far as what they're doing, their inhumanity. And now they're back again, and they just disappear at the end of the episode. We're definitely going to return to this. It's definitely going to be story that continues throughout the series, even if it's not as big as the Daleks. I like that we're getting that. 
And I think they're a scary enough and interesting enough with the little we know as of, as of now of a bad guy to have as one of her main foes. And we can't skip over this. We'll go through it deeper later. But we may have gotten our first storyline that, again, I was surprised with because of what we read, that we may get little bits and bits till the end of the season. And that's The Timeless Child. Yeah. So overall, I liked this a lot better than the first episode. It feels like what I explained to people, it's going to take a little bit of warm up. The episodes will build. you got to at least give it a few. And already in two here, I'm feeling really good about the direction we're headed. And with the TARDIS in hand, any direction we can go. (laughs) So let's move to a segment that we do for other shows. We're going to introduce, I think, much needed within the Doctor Who universe. And that's new faces and places. We started this segment when we were covering Game of Thrones because there were so many characters, so many locations. It was really hard to keep track. I think it can get almost equally as complex for Doctor Who. To begin, we had a couple new characters. The first was Angstrom, played by Susan Lynch who's from the planet Albar in the 12 Galaxies. They're going to mention the 12 Galaxies throughout the episode. That's a political group that's been brought up several times throughout the Doctor Who universe. But Albar is a tiny planet crammed full of rusting high-rises, which is being systematically cleansed. Just a fun fact here, Epso tells Angstrom at some point during the episode that she is nothing, and the word Angstrom is actually an incredibly tiny unit of length. 0.1 0.1 billionth of a meter. Oh, wow. So it is virtually nothing. I did not know that. <laughs> Next, we had Epso, played by Sean Dooley. He's from a planet called Mux Terran, and we'll discuss both of these pilots more as we get into the plot. Then we had Ilin, played by Art Malik, founder of The Rally. We learn he competed and won The Rally, and now he runs it via a holographic computer system. And he's going to make sure this last one is done right, i.e. no sabotage or killing. One thing we didn't get in the plot is why is this the last one? There's got to be a reason. I don't know if we'll ever go back to it, though. It could have something to do with the dictatorship, the takeover, whatever you want to call it, of the Senda who are moving throughout these 12 galaxies and apparently wreaking havoc. This rally of the 12 galaxies is an intergalactic race. We're going to hear about the rules and the prize that you win. And it's taking place on the planet Desolation. At least that's the closest to a name the planet has. Once ruled by the Stenza, it was used to create and test a variety of weapons. Until eventually, the ecosystem was destroyed and has become a wasteland. And finally, we got another alien creature, the Remnants. Creatures that feed upon your fears. While they looked... Super wonky. They just look like pieces of floating fabric. I liked the concept of them. Well, it was very Doctor Who-esque. Absolutely. It also reminded me a little bit. Do you remember one of the Percy Jackson books? Yes. Where they travel to the underworld and they're met by enemies that I think look like some kind of flying bird people. But they too feed upon your fears and they enact... Any curses that people have put on you in their final moments of life, their, their death when you've killed them or they've just been angry with you, let's say this had something to do with covering your eyes beforehand, then you would be cursed through the enactment of this wish to be blind. Mm. And it's temporary. Eventually these things go away, but it actually plays out for a short period of time and it's all built into our basest fears. Really, really scary stuff. There was something about that that kind of came out in the remnants. I like the way they moved. 
And I know the movement must have been very, very important to them. And they probably went back to the drawing board a few times. And I think they ended up taking the inspiration from fabric and water. Because the way they moved around, especially that aerial shot when they're circling the crew, it looked like they were swimming in water. It looked like eels swimming. They reminded me in that respect a little bit of the Dementors from Harry Potter. The way their cloaks billowed out. And we found out later looking into that, they actually used images of cloth in water to get that effect. But when it spoke, and I hate to do this, I don't want to make a full podcast of comparisons. When they made the fabric speak... That was very reminiscent of the sorting hat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's only so many directions you can go with these types of things. If your creature is a piece of moving fabric, you're definitely going to resemble other times where that's happened. Yeah, it was definitely different enough. It didn't bother me at all. But as a podcaster, we are forced to overthink everything. So (laughs) there you go. Well, without further ado, let's jump into our plot. We open up where we left off with episode one. The Doctor and her companions are floating through space. It appears they're in serious trouble when a ship shows up and two humanoid pilots take them in. They're separated for a short time. Ryan and Graham are picked up by Angstrom, who tells them they are just off the final planet, which is out of orbit. It's not where it should be. They manage to land and the companions marvel that they are on an alien planet with three suns in the sky. So if they weren't picked up, I'm assuming they would have all died. That's what it seemed like. Even the doctor looked terrified. And everything's happening so slowly. She's having to kind of strain to turn around and see that they're behind her. Her arms are outstretched. It didn't really look like she had a plan for what to do. And I did rewind it at that point because I wanted to see if she was sending a distress signal with her sonic screwdriver. But it wasn't glowing. Mm -hmm. She was just pointing it. That might have been her next move. Because I think we've seen that in the past, a distress signal. But we do find out, and it does make sense, why they were picked up and why they were picked up so quickly. And also why they were picked up separately. Because Angstrom and Epso thought that this was one of the bonus things. You come back with one of these, I'm assuming you come back to a checkpoint with one of the things left out by the race. And you pick it up. Stranded (laughs) humans. That's probably one of them, yeah. Plus 50 points. You get a bonus. But at this point... No more bonuses. (laughs) Well, meanwhile, Yaz and the Doctor are picked up by Epso. They're aboard his ship, the Cerebros, which he says is the envy of millions. I doubt that. (laughs) They, too, find the planet they're looking for, Desolation. The Doctor says she can get them into the atmosphere if they jettison the back half of his ship. He's not happy about this, but he agrees. She takes over and crash lands into the desert, almost into the others. Yeah, I kept saying, you have a whole world there, and they happen to crash right into you. Yep. Did you like the fact that she was saying, you can't drive, I can do it better? Yeah, well, I liked their back and forth. Yeah. It felt as though they already knew each other. Yeah, and I love the doctor, you know, she's always going to be the smartest and probably most capable in any room you put her in. And I think you had to bring a little light to Epso's character because he wasn't likable. He's very gruff. For the majority of the episode, he's only concerned about himself. Understandably so, this is kind of a cutthroat rally. Mm. They're in, and it's down to two competitors. Every time I look at movies or TV shows, which we love to watch, that take place in space, some of the ships are very small and look like old-time, like uh, ancient trucks or whatever. And then you get the movies where it's like this beautiful, huge ship. But every time I think about that, I love watching these movies. I love being part of the journey. 
But I don't know as a human being if I could deal with being out in space, seeing just a wall and stars, knowing that everything I depend on is being made for me by a machine. I'm oh, talking about terrifying. food, air, gravity. It's all fake. And if something fails, I'm dead. I talk about this all the time. That other science fiction book that I listened to fairly recently, and now the name is escaping me. I'll make sure that we put it in our show notes. But a kind of inventive concept where they come to this alien planet to colonize, and all they have are these 3D printers that print everything from their clothes to their food to their medicine. Consequently, one of the most important jobs on that mission is the one who is responsible to repair this machine. And if it goes down, not only do they not know how to survive, there's really not even natural resources on the planet. And desolation appears the same way. Forget about having natural resources. It's a dangerous planet, as the doctor tells us. You remind me, desolation. You know what I was thinking would have been a good twist, and I kept waiting for it to come, was that at the end, when she finds the TARDIS, and she wonders while she's in there, why did the TARDIS keep coming here every thousand years? She finds out that that's actually Earth. Hmm. And because of what they did in episode one, the Stenza came back and desolated Earth. Well, I definitely want to get into this later. We get to our questions section, theories for the future. So hold on to that. Anyhow, they all meet up together here, and the doctor admits to the companions she made a terrible mistake. And I thought to myself, yet another example of the compassion, humanity, the difference in this doctor, so readily admitting when she thinks she's wrong, apologizing for things. There was a lot of differences in the end when she gives up. Mm. I don't remember or recall the doctor ever actually giving up. The companions who are still very new in this experience, being the ones to bolster her and to be all lit on accomplishing their goal. Back to this scene, Angstrom tells Epso it's just the two of them left and wonders how she even made it this far. Uh, then you have one of maybe two areas where I thought just minor details, slightly rough to the plot, but noticeable in my opinion. Graham wonders how they're going to understand these people talking in an alien language. But the doctor finds that the Medipods put implants into each of them as a standard procedure in order to translate the language. I thought this was awfully convenient <laughs> well. because the explanation, which has always been a, a little bit rough, if the TARDIS was anywhere nearby, it would send out some kind of magic translator wave so that you could understand. <clears throat> I never question that. It's the TARDIS. Well, you no, the TARDIS magical. is capable of doing <laughs> incredible things, and I never have a problem with that. But you don't even have to be inside of it, just anywhere within the general vicinity. Like if the TARDIS is on the planet, you have these translation capabilities. But fine, okay. Now, though, we needed some sort of supplemental answer to plug in there, and it just seemed so easy. Oh, like they put a, an implant in you. Who? When? Why well, would they do this? I see what you're saying. I do. The fact that the Medipod would put translators in them. It does seem a little easy. I want you to take a step back and think about this. 
If you are putting someone in a Medipod and you're going to try to cure them or heal them, you're going to inevitably need to speak to them. So if this is a land where you meet people from other worlds often, right? Because you're a traveler in space. There's probably many times where there's things, I don't, I want to say people, that speak different languages and you need to speak to them to help them. It would only make sense that the Medipods would do that automatically. Oh, of, of course. But they haven't gotten to interact with anybody on this planet yet or anyone from the rally. Meaning the only time this could have been done was when they were on Angstrom and Epso's ships. Right. In the Medipods. So they had two completely different ships. We see that. One of them, Epso's, apparently much, much older and not as technologically sophisticated, and yet they both had equal capabilities and thought to put in these same implants and had the time while they're crash landing on the planet. And I don't know, just it's a minor detail. We don't need to get bogged down, but it it bothered me. It could have been par for course. If they were used to picking up strandeds for bonuses, maybe that was just automatically they would put in those translators so that they so that they could speak to them. Maybe they had a clue or something. But technology wise, did Epso's ship look well, it's a ship. I mean, technology-wise, it's a ship. Yeah, but kind of like a rusty... <laughs> Old school Clunker of a ship. Uh, maybe they I'm had thinking his Medipod's probably not as up-to-date. My, my iPhone has a translator in it. If these are ships that they, you know, they travel through space all the time, maybe it's a normal thing. Uh, okay, I'm not going to keep going on this one. <laughs> it just, I don't think I'm the only one that it bothered. I've seen a couple of things written about it. Agree to disagree. No, I understand I where you're I think it was from. a way for the writer to quickly... Yes, of course. Don't worry about this. And I made up this whole story to make myself more comfortable. <laughs> well, I think that's probably. what you need to do when there's small plot holes. And we do that with other shows. But I think it's the sign of a baby hiccup when you have to do that. I shouldn't have to make up a whole storyline mm-hmm. to get from point A to point B. But overall, the writing has been fantastic. And I really love this episode. So it didn't get to me. I actually enjoyed the next part that I thought Chibnall, because Chibnall wrote this episode, right, was able to do very well, very eloquently within a succinct scene. I'm talking about when they walk inside of the tent and they find the projection hologram of Illin. He explains to us very quickly what this is, everything we're wondering. He tells them they're intruding on the final stage of this last ever rally. Of the 4,000 who have entered, only Angstrom and Epso are left. The prize, if they win, is 3.2 trillion crin. We're having a rough time with the exchange rate here. So he tells us, well, it's enough to provide a lifetime of comfort on a safe world for the winning pilot and their entire clan. I mean, that's pretty huge. Pretty good. Their final challenge is to cross the terrain, survive the planet, get through the ruins and the mist swamps, and finally to the site marked as the Ghost Monument, named by ancient settlers. It appears in the same place every thousand rotations. If they win, they're transported off the planet. If not, well, they're stuck here. They knew the risks when they signed on. It's the ultimate test of survival. He gives them one piece of advice. Take your meds, don't travel at night, and don't touch the water. The planet has been made cruel. The stage must be completed before a rotation is finished. And he shows them the location of the finish line. After the doctor presses him a little further, she's able to get additional information and this rough image of the ghost monument, which she realizes is the TARDIS. I don't want to get into the speculation here. We're going to come back to this later of 
why in the hell the TARDIS is here. It has been here for a very, very long time. But she thinks the engines must be stuck in a loop, phasing in and out of time and space. If she gets there, she should be able to stabilize it and get them home. Did you enjoy this reveal, or do you think it would have been better played if the reveal was later on in the episode? Much better played if we didn't know it. I'm not sure why they even put it up front. To be honest with you, I think it's to propel the Doctor and the crew to go along with this race. Because otherwise, why would they? Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. So it's a predicament that the writer had. Mm -hmm. I for sure would have done the reveal later, but I don't know how I would have made it believable that they would go along with it. Entice them, yeah. Well, the crew begins their journey, which starts out by getting to this boat. It's the one thing that the rally leaders have provided them, the one piece of assistance, because they're not able to touch the water. But they have to figure out how to get it up and going. While they're doing that, the companions are talking amongst themselves. Yaz right away says she believes the doctor, that she'll get them home. The others are kind of discussing whether or not they agree. Graham says she's our best hope, or our only option, depending on your politics. But he's definitely coming more over to the doctor's side and quicker than I thought he would. Me too. It's Ryan that's a bit of a holdout, and he was the one in episode one who was all up for going on this adventure. I'm wondering if this is because we have three companions, and maybe there always has to be one that's remiss to go along so easily. I don't know if that needs to be there every episode. I hope they don't just flip-flop like that. Um, we got to keep in mind this is still fresh. This is new to them. They weren't even supposed to be on this trip. So people's emotions can change. And this isn't at home trying to figure out this mystery anymore. They're on an alien planet. The stakes have been really upped, but we kind of thought that would be consistent to Graham's character, at least for a while. He He, does have his bitchy moments, but... He has his moments, but he feels different this episode. Very different. Than last time. And in fact, he actually wants Ryan to open up and talk about Grace. It's Ryan who's kind of closed up and saying they don't need to do that. But the two of them figure out that the engine to the boat is like a solar battery. They're able to get it running. While this is going on, the doctor warns them that this is a dangerous planet. There are millions of flesh-eating microbes in the water. Gross. (laughs) Uh, It has a toxic atmosphere, no other people, animals, or insects. And she wonders what happened here. The doctor is the only one asking the right question. And I wrote this in my notes before she gives us the big speech at the end. She wants to know what happened to this planet, to the people of the planet. No one else seems to care. Well, to Angstrom and Epso, this is a small hurdle. They know they're only here for a short period of time. They need to be focused on their mission because it's their only chance at survival, at a better life, not just for themselves, but for their entire family. This is probably one of many places that they've gone to, and it's the last spot. So I don't think they can be sidetracked. They have to keep themselves really focused. That's how I feel when I go to Jersey. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, The companions, they do start also asking questions, but I think right now they don't even know what questions to ask. They're in such shock over this entire situation. Christina's from Jersey. I don't want people who are in Jersey to be like, fuck this guy. Uh, I'm making well, fun of Christina. Well, you wouldn't be the first one to just <laughs> shit on the state as a whole. So, you know. What happened to the people here? <laughs> North Jersey, man. I mean. <laughs> While traveling on the boat, the pilots start to explain a little of their background. That the race started with 94 pilots and the two of them had to work their way up. Angstrom explains that because of the state of her home planet, 
Her family is in hiding or on the run. This rally is their only chance. Epso is suspicious about working together, even just for the short period of time that they're on the boat, as he was taught in childhood never to trust anyone in this life. into the ground, broke this arm, shattered that ankle. And she stood over me and she said, now you've learned. You can never trust anyone in this life. The doctor tells him she thinks his mother was wrong, that they are stronger together. I feel like this boat scene was the only time that they were able to try to build some character, any kind of depth for these characters, including our companions. Well, they had some brief moments of respite in between each of these kind of mini obstacles while they're on the planet that yes, you can have these little sidebar conversations where we build some depth, but it's difficult. Like the Ryan Graham scene was super awkward because it was way too short. Mm -hmm. It, It gave us a little bit about Graham's character, which I liked, but it's like they're trying to jam it in there because they know that they need to further the character development. It felt a little more natural with Angstrom and Epso a little bit. I think it's it's definitely going to be harder with the one episode type characters, but they did it so successfully with Grace last time. And I think that sets the bar super high moving forward. Well, they all land and while walking across the desert, Epso explains the cigar he has is special because it would take half an Althusian lifetime to make this self-lighting treat. When they arrive at the ruins themselves, Angstrom and Epso split up. The doctor and companions realize they have been surrounded by robot guards, which are activated and begin shooting at them. When I saw these guards, they looked pretty cool, right? The guns first looked like Halo guns from the video game. But then as I looked at the guards even more, and this would make sense, it's from the same creators of Halo, it was really like a Destiny character. Remember that video game, Destiny? I say that loosely, but these soldiers definitely could have been pulled straight out of Destiny. Well, the location too, and I think it's no coincidence that later Ryan gives that a bit of a shout out. Yes. When he's like, well, I've played Call of Duty, so I'm good. That made me laugh because it was going right along the lines of the way I was thinking Mm -hmm. with those machines. Yeah, it's like the writers talking to us. When this happens, the doctor sends out an electromagnetic pulse from her sonic to temporarily fry their system. So... This whole scene, we spoke about it last episode, actually. The doctor's morals and how she's able, he or she, because we're talking about the past, so Mm -hmm. he was able to translate those morals with her companions. There was only once where that didn't happen, and that was the one episode where we had that companion-ish who was gone real quick. When here we are now, and right away we see Ryan's like, let me just shoot them. Yeah, I okay, so we have had a couple of instances. I can't remember his name, but you're going back to early revival era, maybe with David Tennant, where they had a companion who was secondary but traveling with them for quite a few episodes that they had to kick him out. Mm-hmm. For his behavior, there's been a few times where the lines are a little blurred as to what are we allowed to do, what is self-defense versus violence, when is it warranted, 
and I kind of had this conversation with you, even the doctor, him or herself, has had some issues without getting into too many plot spoilers from the past over how far is too far. When do I need to take up action against an enemy that's threatening violence to other people? Mm. So I was saying last episode, I don't know that it's out of the realm that the doctor needs to kind of lay this out a little bit for them because here I am in this episode and I'm kind of confused what's okay, what's not okay. I mean, if you go to the doctor last time, in episode one, she knows that by putting those implant bombs Mm -hmm. into the coil creature, Tim Shaw is going to take the information along with the bombs and essentially implant them in himself. If those would have gone off, that's okay because the doctor didn't actually shoot him. He did it himself. It's still violent. You're still not solving the problem without having to kill that person should they go off. Then in this episode, we're also kind of walking that line between what's okay, what's not okay. I, I don't think it's as black and white, maybe, as we would like to think at times, but I think that's okay. Yeah. That's something that a doctor should be struggling with, and it's a moral gray area with how do you defeat some of these creatures in the absence of that. And that's where I agreed with Ryan, where he said, these aren't beings, these aren't living creatures, they're robots, let me just shoot them. And it made for a funny scene. Yeah, but that's one small step, right? True. They appear to be robots. We think they're robots. What happens if you come to somebody like Cybermen and you don't know them well enough yet? I still shoot those fuckers. Okay, so but that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's that's a tough question. And yeah, this episode actually made me think about two of them. That's one. And I think it's perhaps something that the writers might play with a bit this season. I would like to see that happen. The second was, does Jodie Whittaker's doctor, this sonic she has created for herself, does it have more abilities than some previous screwdrivers we've seen in the past? I think it's still too early to tell, but the way she was scanning them and getting a readout of information right from the screwdriver, Mm -hmm. the electromagnetic pulse she was able to send out, it seems like the sonic can do a lot of stuff. Yes, but it always could. I think the difference is she is verbalizing what she's reading rather than what the other doctors would just look at it. I remember Matt Smith's little wrist flick he always gave after, and that was him reading. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know. He wouldn't verbalize what was was going on. So how would we know if this is more from the past or not? But I think they're really leaning on the fact that there's going to be a lot of new people watching. For sure, the way they went more in detail about explaining the regeneration in episode one. Uh, But the fact that she has built this one herself. It's awesome. It could create some differences and could be either more or less powerful or just different. I know that we made a deal. Actually, you put your foot down that I can't buy any more figurines, but I have to buy the screwdriver. You know I do. The screwdriver is okay. An eight-foot cardboard TARDIS. Clatchers, I want to buy a a cardboard TARDIS. It's eight feet. It's like we're still... I want it in the podcast studio. Let her know I should buy it. We have zero space in this smaller apartment now to the point that we are bursting at the seams with stuff. I like stuff. We have nowhere to put an eight-foot TARDIS. I need stuff in my pockets. But real quick, back to what you were saying. Nonviolent ways to regain control or gain control. We did see another one. The Venetian Aikido. Again, though, kind of walks that line. 
you know, and even sh- even the doctor makes an appointment to say, well, it's only temporary, though. He'll recover from it. And seems like maybe the kind of thing that the doctor learned exactly for those reasons. It's a physical way of temporarily disabling her opponent. And throughout just the past two episodes, we've gotten multiple times where the doctor makes a point to tell us, well, I'm going to fry the creature. He'll only be out for five minutes, though. It only temporarily disables him. Well, I'm going to put them all down, but that's not going to last very long because those methods are okay. Well, it was created by nuns, so it's got to be okay. But I like that. It's a martial art that she learned many, many years ago. It was used way back in the day by John Pertwee. The third doctor. Yeah. Can you, can you stop going into my spoiler section? My bad. Because we're supposed to be keeping all backtrack stuff. Free from this non-spoiler section for our newcomers. But Venusian Aikido, uh, it looks like it's about pressure points and things like that. Yeah. I took Aikido Aikido, uh, Japanese Aikido, um, and there was no pressure points. It was really using the other person's momentum and strength against them to be able to throw them. It was the non-violent art, but it really was violent because I could throw you into things, and I would shove my hand into your face using your momentum. So, yeah, it's so just, there was is, no kicks or this anything. This is a step down from that, apparently. But getting back to the plot, the doctor is able to temporarily put the guards out of commission and realizing they might need some help, Angstrom and Epso meet back up with the others. The doctor says she has learned where the robot's control commands emanated from and leads them to a hatch to find answers to the catastrophic event that occurred on Desolation. Uh, this was the other point of the episode that I wondered a little bit about. I'm really glad so soon they came back to Ryan's dyspraxia. And I wonder if they kind of preempted our thought process from episode one. Wouldn't he have had a little more difficulty with that ladder they were trying to climb on the crane? Because, in fact, he does have difficulty again here with the ladder. And he does fall when he's running away from the doctor landing, crash landing into the planet, if you remember. Mm -hmm. Because I was watching him run. I was like, he's running pretty fast. But then he he does fall. Well, he even explains the next time when they're going up to the doctor that he needs a minute to try to focus himself so that he can put things together. And she understands, but has to hurry him along. They're in a bit of a rush. She does it very well. Again, though, it's not really the kind of thing that, okay, we're pressured and I just got to focus more. And I'll be able to do it now. I think they're still trying to get their handle on how to portray that with Ryan. But I'm glad that we're seeing it. It's a tough one because there's a lot of running. I mean, the doctor is known for saying run. It is kind Um, of a weird difficulty to give one of our companions. Universe, yeah. And I think you're not really going to be able to portray it 100% of the time so well because of that. It's going to be difficult. So I don't know about, you know, how they're going to do that moving forward. Anyhow, though, the tunnels they find inside of this hatch run under half the planet. So in addition to discovering the truth, they will be able to travel at night and cut their distance by bypassing the mountains, which is great for our pilots. Graham notices scorch marks along the walls as they walk, and they find a locked room with inscriptions on the floor left by those who worked here. This really gives us the answers to what the doctor has been seeking. It says, we are scientists, abducted, tortured, and made to work while our families are held hostage. 
we are forced to find new ways of destruction, poisons, weapons, creatures. We gave them our minds and they made us the creators of death. The planet has been left scorched and barren from our work. Killing machines and creatures inhabit every corner. We had no choice but to obey the stenza. We are trying to destroy all our work before they use it against others. They're coming. In a nutshell, this tells us basically everything we need to know about the stenza. And overall, it was a good scene. It was gripping. I was actually kind of scared. I knew something was going to happen when they went down there. This is perhaps an area where they could have gone even more in depth if we were back to old school days where one plot lasted us two episodes. Yeah. A whole planet this could have been a two that's episode inhabited or... creatures and methods of death is scary and could have unfolded, I think, even more so. I mean, basically, we see robot guards and we see the remnants. Uh, but it sounds like they were at this for quite some time. This is why we have flesh-eating microbes <laughs> in the water. I mean, that's terrifying. After this, Angstrom says the Stenza are the ones who took her planet and sent them into hiding. So we are seeing that their reach is far We've just gotten the beginning of what's going on with them. Then Epso is nearly suffocated by one of the creatures until they get him free. The robots shut down the life support system in the tunnels, forcing them to the surface and putting them out into the acetylene fields. God, this is so scary. <laughs> the remnants, which lie dormant on the surface until night, come out and surround them, feeding upon their fears. They say the doctors are the strongest. The timeless child... You lead, but you're scared for yourself and others. We see what's hidden even from yourself. What did you just say? She doesn't know. What are you talking about? What can you see? We see what's hidden even from yourself. The outcast, abandoned and unknown. So here's that little bit of a clue that we were talking about at the top of this podcast. I'm so glad they are introducing this. So this is definitely something that has been buried deep into the doctor's mind for a very long time. It's something probably so painful that you dig it so deep that you don't remember yourself. That's what this seems like. And we've seen this before with the doctor. Past discretions that are too painful to think about and ever talk about. And then we find out later on. Well, we don't really find out later on. And that's why I kind of wanted to save some of this for the spoiler section. We have gotten names over the course of time from other beings for the doctor. Potential hints at her origins, her identity, and maybe what's yet to come for her in the future. Now, is this solely based on her fears? I don't know. It feels like a label, another one that we're being given. Well, the doctor manages to get the others to understand her plan for how to get rid of the remnants. They throw the self-lighting cigar into the air and it lights everything on fire. Very cool scene. It was, well, there's destruction for you. Yeah, lighting on fire is okay. <laughs> this is what I mean. Like, I don't know what the rules are. It just feels like uh, we make them up as we go along. But I've never seen fire act that way. I know fire goes up, but it doesn't just like three feet in the air, not touch the ground. I think it's because of the toxic things that are actually in the atmosphere. Okay. And do you remember when we used to do metalworking in art class, the acetylene torches? Yes. And how it could create kind of that area of flame when the right elements were mixed in? Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is, reacting okay. to it. Dig it. The digging was funny because they didn't really dig that much. <laughs> <laughs> Couple feet into the sand. But I had no idea what was coming. Until I started to understand what the hell. Well, that was definitely Chekhov's cigar. Yes. When they brought it up with him earlier. I mean, it, it didn't even really fit into the scene. 
by the way, this cigar is self-lighting. It's amazing. But I wasn't thinking about it at that moment. I think you forgot about it, yeah. right, which is good. It has been said that it was a little obvious to some people. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm dumb. A little, but I, I still think it was okay. And the group now continues to follow the route tracker to the finish line. But the TARDIS isn't there. Angstrom and Epso walk in together and claim a joint victory. Illin wants to declare the final race void, but after Epso threatens him, he recognizes them as equal winners. So this was cool, a little comparison. In the beginning of the episode, when Illin had to make a point and be threatening, he got in the face of Angstrom, right up in her face. And in this ending scene, they get right up into his face. So that's a little nice uh, bookend. Well, and they have Epso make this short character arc where he has redeeming qualities in the end. I mean, he's fighting it still at first for them to be joint winners, but he does end up agreeing to it. However, this means they are taken off the planet and they leave the doctor and the companion stranded here. And it was so fast. You can't blame them. They tried. They said, well, what about them? He was like, nope. Sentence. (laughs) Yeah. Yet again, the doctor apologizes for failing them. And here's the moment where she's getting very pessimistic. She thinks they'll be dead within one rotation. But the companions say they haven't given up yet. This was an endearing speech. If I remember correctly, it was led by Graham. We're starting to get a little more from these companions. It looks like she's going to be leaning on them tremendously, just as much as they'll be leaning on her. Again, though, I was very surprised to see the doctor giving up. Also, I wasn't too worried because they did say they found a shortcut, so they'd be there quicker. If the TARDIS comes at the same time every, what was it, 1,000 years, Mm -hmm. 5,000? 1,000. They're a little early. You have to wait a little longer. Oh, yeah, but (laughs) that's got to freak you out when you get there and it's not there. They don't know how much time they have in this atmosphere. They made mention in Illin's kind of warning advice at the beginning of the episode to take their meds. I don't know if the pilots had something that was helping protect them against all of the toxicity on this planet. It doesn't seem like that's something that was given to the companions. But anyhow, it doesn't matter. (laughs) They soon hear the sound of the TARDIS, and then they see it appear. The doctor runs to it, exclaiming she has missed it and likes the redecorating. She shows it to the others, who are amazed by the dimensional engineering and the fact that it is both a spaceship and a timeship. And it can take them home. This was the scene we've all been waiting for. We had some very fun doctorisms from the top of the episode when she says, I forgot to fill my pockets. To this part when she says, it's your daddy, I mean your mommy. It's just funny. And again, to touch upon how endearing she was with this TARDIS. Meeting it, just like meeting an old friend for the first time. We were all feeling that, and I'm really glad that Chibnall was willing to feed into that. But it is bigger on the inside. (laughs) You can say it, come on. Well, and that takes me to questions. We've sort of gone over all of them except this last one. How long has the TARDIS been here and why? I mean, they say that it appears every thousand rotations. This has to have been going on for quite a long time to get the nickname Ghost Monument. How? How is that possible? What has it been doing here this whole time? So this was one of the reasons why I was thinking maybe this was the Earth that was scorched, and we just didn't know yet, because that would make sense. But then again, it's the TARDIS. It can go anywhere. It was glitching out, so I guess it just kept going to different places, and the line of places that it was going, it took 1,000 cycles to get back to this one. That's what I'm assuming. But that has to have happened several times. They're saying it appears mm. every 1,000 years. It hasn't been gone that long. 
what, how did this happen? You know, where... Well, time's not linear. No, it's not. Especially for the TARDIS. So it could be going back in time sometimes, forward in time sometimes. But why was it repeatedly coming to this location without the Doctor? There is an obvious question they're building into this episode that hasn't really been answered for us yet. Take it. And given the fact that the Stenza and everything they've been going through are so critical, we know that they had people for a long time here working on this weaponry. I think we're coming back to that the same way we're coming back to the trophies from the last episode. Well, that wraps up our plot and takes us into our rating. Jason, on a scale of 1 to 10 Sonics, what do you give the Ghost Monument? Keeping in mind that episode 1, I gave it an 8, and you gave it an 8.3. Well, this episode I liked just as much as the first one. I'm back and forth which one I liked better. I think there's still tremendous room for growth. So if you're Clatchers who are just giving this a try because you like listening to the CKC podcast, and you're on the fence, I say to you, keep giving it some more time. I still believe in it. So I'm going with 8.4 Sonics, one notch above last week. Well, I definitely agree with the giving it time thing, and we won't get into details until spoilers, but with the glimpses we are getting of next episode, it seems we're going to get some more of what I love about Doctor Who. Stay tuned if you want more on that. I think that episode three is going to finally push me over into, okay, I'm all in now. Mm. This has all the elements I was looking for, but... I did like this a lot better than episode one. I did feel we were returning to form and I was really able to enjoy myself again with the beats and the flow of Doctor Who. So for that reason, I'm going to go up to an 8.5. Oh, so from an 8 to an 8.5. Yeah, we got a big bump. I'm, I'm very surprised IMDb went down from a 7.9 to a 7.1 and yet Rotten Tomatoes stayed the same. Well, now we move on to the portion where the Clatchers are just as bit involved in this podcast as we are, where we go into the segment where the Clatchers give us their most valuable companions, and we get questions and comments from our Clatcher companions. But before we go into this segment, speaking of Clatchers, if you really like listening to the CKC podcast, we have even more content for you. If you go to coffeeclatchcrew.com and click on Patreon, there you have the ability to join the crew for bonus podcast episodes every month and movie podcast episodes every month that you yourself vote on. We go to the movies, we go see it, we come back and we give you a full scale review just like we do with these shows. Yeah, really in depth, a lot of information. Sometimes we even do fun throwbacks if there's nothing big out at the movie theaters at the time. There are three tiers. So there's bound to be one that works for everyone. But no matter what tier you choose, you are automatically entered into our monthly raffles. Each month, there are two winners, one from the new members that have joined that month and one from the existing member pool. So everyone has a chance to win. And the winners get one free item of gear from the CKC store. That's any item of your choosing. There are no restrictions. You let us know. We'll send it to you. Besides the bonus content, which is really fun, we go over so many things it's hard to explain. We go over uh, the brain. We go over other shows that we're watching, current events. Sometimes there's a bigger topic. And for October, this is a fun time to join. In theme with Halloween that's coming up, we have Evil Through the Ages. Everything from how Satan is depicted in artwork to Jack the Ripper's mystery. It's a fun podcast. So if you join that, you know that you get more content and you're helping Christine and myself out. For the price of one cup of coffee, you and a collective group of Clatchers are helping Christine and myself continue to provide free content. We really enjoy doing it, but it takes time and dedication, so your patronage makes that possible. We hope to see you over there. 
And if you can't do Patreon right now, there are other ways that you can support us. If you like what you hear, don't forget to give us a rate and review on iTunes. It really helps for others to find us when they're searching for Doctor Who coverage. And speaking of reviews, thank you to Kirk and Gross1000 for the American iTunes reviews. And I say American because we can't see Canada or any other country. For some reason, iTunes does not want to include them in what we can see. But it all still helps, so don't worry, no matter where you're from. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Okay, so on to our most valuable companion. Like every week, directly after an episode, via Twitter. So if you missed it, you still have plenty of weeks left. Just follow at CKC Podcast. We give you four options of who your MVC is. Now, we're not going to include the doctor because we learned really quick if we did... The doctor would win every week, and that's not fair. So this week, your options were Angstrom, Epso, Graham, and Yaz. Now, believe it or not, this could be the first time. If not, it doesn't happen super often. We have a tie. So tying for third and fourth place with 0% of the votes are both Yaz and Epso. And tying for first place with 50% each, Graham and Angstrom. That's amazing because those were the two I was flip-flopping between for who would win the episode. Honestly, putting together these options was pretty difficult for me because I felt like in this particular episode, our companions did not have room to give us any kind of background or depth. We had little sprinkles here and there, but at this point, they are not that important to me. It's all about the Doctor. But knowing how Doctor Who has worked in the past... I'm still confident that at least one of them will be very important in the storyline. Yeah, well, and yet again, I think the least room and the least development was given to Yaz. I don't know when we're going to be able to come back to her, but I hope it's soon because episodes one and two, we didn't get that much for her. I'm not surprised. She doesn't have a lot of the votes. Also, with only four spots, we're probably not going to be able to put all three companions up each time which is fine. Our secondary companions have been very compelling thus far, so we'll keep a mixture in the rotation. I think that Graham finally took a little step towards his development, his likability. He was also the one to find the scorch marks on the wall to motivate us a couple of times. But Angstrom was very quickly likable, and I found myself rooting for her and getting to know her as a character. And so for that reason, she is my MVC for this week. Well, last week we had the same MVC, and this week is different. Thank goodness. I went with Graham. I felt like Graham did show some growth from episode one to episode two. He seemed to be the one who most believed in the Doctor at this point. Well, at least in this episode. I'm sure that'll change. For Clatcher's comments, Maurizio wrote in to say, After two episodes, something about the storyline feels off. I'm used to fast-paced Doctor Who, and I think Chibnall has slowed it down. Also, because new Doctor, Companions, and Monsters, I feel a lot of time is being devoted to character development. Hopefully the pace will pick up. Jodie Whittaker is fantastic. By the way, how did I miss the fact that my favorite podcasters are doing Doctor Who? <laughs> Thanks, Maurizio. Well, first to answer your last comment. It's really difficult for us to get the word out. <clears throat> we do stress when we're doing a new show or when a, no a show is coming on to the point where we feel like we're being annoying, so we end up backing <laughs> off a little bit. It's very difficult to let all the Clatchers know, hey, we're doing something new. We haven't found the best way. We talk about it in podcasts. We tweet about it. But it's, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, point being, if you know listeners that are into Doctor Who, tell them about us. We'd love to grow the community. 
Um, I definitely agree that something was still feeling a little off and like something's missing. It does feel like something it's, is missing. It's, I can't even quite identify. I know that for me that improved to this episode, uh, probably in large part because of the pacing. I felt it was a little bit faster paced and picking up with the storyline this time around. I think having the doctor be fully regenerated did help in those regards because the doctor could be the doctor at this point. For sure. But like you said, there are still moments where they slow it down to intentionally explain, try to place and place character development. Yes. Um, which is even with all that effort, still a little bit spotty. So I can see you feeling that way, but given what I see as the progression and positive development, I think that's going to resolve itself very soon, hopefully. Yeah, and it's funny because we said there's not much character development in this episode. There was just enough where it slowed things down, but not enough where I was satisfied about the characters. Mm -hmm. And that's on purpose. If they tried to do it all in one episode, I'm sure that would be a really boring boring episode. So we just have to give this time, especially considering that there's three companions that we have to learn about now. I guess what's scary to me is it's only a 10 episode season. Yeah. So, you know, how do you find that right balance? I think for episode two, they had to throw us into the plot so that new watchers would at least be excited Yeah. about that aspect of it. Um, but Michelle disagrees with me. She says, for me, it wasn't as great as the first episode, but I still enjoyed it. I'm not sure what I think of the TARDIS interior, but I love the fact it has biscuits. <laughs> Hell yep. yeah. The little Doctor Whoisms. It's perfect. I can't wait to see what else this new TARDIS does. So thank you, Michelle and Maurizio. We were a little light on comments this week. I think we didn't give our clatchers enough time to watch the episode. But now that you're aware of it, you can always reach out to us. You can even talk to us about this episode and we'll bring it up next. You can tweet at us, of course, at CKC Podcast. Email us contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com or you can leave a clatcher voicemail these are really fun and it's utilized a lot in our patreon just call ckc.6606 that's 252-368-6606 leave a message and we'll play it on the podcast don't be scared we've had people do it before where they mess up on the first one just say, disregard this one. I'm calling back and leaving a better one. Or if you make a mistake, we can always edit it out. So don't worry. It's tons of fun. And also, just so you're familiar with our format moving forward, even though the episode doesn't come out till a little bit later in the week, we do record on Mondays. So I know that's kind of a, a quick turnaround, but we'll do our best to get all the comments in there. And hey, you can always leave one about a previous episode. We go back to things all the time. That's going to do it for our regular coverage, and we're going to move into our spoiler section now. If you are not traversing into there, we will see you next week for episode three. This is your warning. If you're not supposed to be here, we're giving you time to get out. I'll give you a minor one first. Of course, we're always getting throwbacks in Doctor Who. In this episode, the doctor gives Graham a pair of sunglasses, which she says might have belonged to Audrey Hepburn or maybe Pythagoras. She doesn't remember, but both of whom she has met in previous Doctor Who episodes. This also marks the first time since 1987, with the exception of two episodes, Day and Sleep, that the TARDIS did not appear, until the very end, of course. And it's the first episode since The Husbands of River Song to not have any scenes on Earth, which shocks me. I feel like we have had plenty of episodes we weren't on Earth. I mean, I, I know that sometimes we had callbacks, like let's say with Peter Capaldi, where Nardole would be on Earth, and so we would get a minute of him there, right. even though the majority of the episode was on another planet. 
that's pretty crazy. Also coming back around to the doctor herself, we said there were some areas we didn't want to talk about because it really delves deep into the background. She used to be known as grandfather. We're talking, I think, first doctor where his granddaughter Susan was traveling with him. And that's how she referred to him a lot. Now, of course, it was her grandfather. So that might have just been a turn of phrase. But some people are asking if this is going to tie into Ryan and Graham's relationship. The fact that they keep pushing grandfather. that Ryan won't call him granddad. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, the doctor has gone by many names before, most of them given by other people, other beings. We think this episode marks a new one where she's called the timeless child. So you think this is just a name or it harks on something that has happened to her and she doesn't remember and we don't know yet? I think it's definitely going to hold bigger significance. I mean, it could just be that she has no time. She doesn't really belong to any time frame as she's a traveler. She's constantly back and forth. And she's an outcast in the sense that she doesn't have her home planet anymore. She is the last or one of the last of the Time Lords, her race. And she's always kind of felt a little bit lonely and abandoned, right? We learned a little bit through the episode we got where Peter Capaldi went back to Gallifrey that even as a child, she didn't really have these connections, um, except to the master, which (laughs) is Mm -hmm. just this whole other kind of relationship. But I think they've given us just these little bits throughout the years. They feel like almost like foretellings from these beings that somehow know more than we do and can see into the doctor, can see the Mm -hmm. truth at the heart of the matter. I think this is going to be one of them. I'm excited to see how this turns out. I'm hoping it's a storyline that we don't know about yet. Those are always fun when we find out something about the doctor way, way back in the day. Also, you mentioned about was the doctor really raised by Venusian nuns where she learned this Aikido? Somebody mentioned, could they be the sisterhood of the Karn? And I either don't remember or wasn't familiar with who that was. I looked it up, and it was a female society dedicated to protecting the sacred flame, which produced the elixir of life. Oh, it's been a while. They were actually originally from Gallifrey, these people, but they came to reside on the planet Karn. And they were first seen in the episode The Brain of Morbius, They were apparently expelled from Gallifrey by the triumvirate of Rassilon. They also fought against Morbius when he attempted to invade Karn. They manufactured their elixir of life under a license to produce this special Morbius lotion. They made one pot every hundred years. And when the sacred flame appeared to be dying, the sisterhood suspected the fourth doctor of trying to steal the remaining elixir. I mean, so that goes way back. We wouldn't be familiar with that. But I guess people are bringing up those questions. Oh, we also mentioned talking about the TARDIS that we have seen it actually personified before. We didn't want to go that far in the non-spoiler section, but that amazing episode where it was depicted as a woman and the doctor was able to interact with the spirit of the TARDIS. Yes. And actually, Christina stopped me mid-sentence on the top of this podcast because I started going into that. I felt that The way this doctor was greeting the TARDIS when it finally reappeared, how much emotion was involved in that. Just like I said before, I thought it was very in line with how we were going to be feeling when we saw the TARDIS. But also, it made so much sense because the TARDIS has been personified before. It has been a person. So treating it like a person, just like you do with your dogs or any animals you love, is even that much more relatable 
because it is. You can there see is a per- personality in there. Yeah, that spirit. I that's why I didn't want that ruined for anyone because you think of spoilers, you think of really big things, mysteries that we've been given over the years. But there's also moments like that that are so impactful. And because I didn't know about it, it was a huge surprise to me. And I look back now and think, man, that was one of the best Doctor Who episodes (laughs) because isn't one of the biggest things the TARDIS? And now I do think about it as a person, all these changes that it's undergoing and what must be going on in the mind of the TARDIS. It's amazing. Yeah, and I believe this is the first time in my memory. Don't jump on me if I'm wrong here. It's the first time in my memory where it's not the doctor who redecorated. It was the TARDIS who redecorated herself. I think the TARDIS always has some influence. Oh, probably. Over it, you know, because it's like that essence that makes the magic or whatever you want to Mm -hmm. call it to do these things. Maybe the first time that the doctor really had no idea. And certainly, I think that they liked it, that they were really all about the changes that had been made. So I'm really eager to see what else is new now about the TARDIS. Well, and lastly, we have our information for the next episode. Number three will be called Rosa. It takes place in Montgomery, Alabama, 1955. The doctor and her friends find themselves in the deep south of America, As they encounter a seamstress by the name of Rosa Parks, they begin to wonder whether someone is attempting to change history. And this is what I was teasing before. These are my favorite episodes when we go to the past. When we get to see history and monumental figures, what happened then. When we saw Van Gogh. I love that episode. (laughs) Yeah, so I think this is going to be one of my favorites. So that wraps up this timey-wimey week. Thank you so much for being a part of the crew and going on this journey with us. Again, if you have any friends who really love Doctor Who, let them know about us. Have them join the virtual water cooler. Patreon members, your bonus episode is coming out this weekend. And for all the other companions, till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Try again.